When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So folks who are struggling with addiction, why is this thing called mindfulness helpful? Well, as you know, folks who struggle with addiction are really hard on themselves. There's a lot of judgment there for sure. Folks in recovery would certainly have strong cravings and um, mindfulness does really awesome things with cravings. Mindfulness is a powerful tool to help the person slow down, pause, and provide a moment of calm in a chaotic world before um, habitual situation happens. That was Dr. Rebecca Williams on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Be sure to check out Praxis Continuing Education for their online trainings. Just go to the sponsors page of offtheclockpsych.com to link to Praxis, and there you'll find a discount code you can use for registration on any live training events. So check it out. We're also affiliates with Dr. Rick Hansen's online neurodharma program and his Foundations of Wellbeing programs, and you can find out more about them at our website, offtheclockpsych.com where you'll get a $40 discount. Hi, this is Diana Hill here. And 
Current times have really uh, inspired and motivated many of us to want to take committed action in our lives, make meaningful change that supports social justice, our health, our relationships, what we're doing in the world. And I'm interested in helping you do that. So I'm going to be running a workshop on committed action, make meaningful change in your life that's online through Yoga Soup, which is my home yoga studio that's doing some great work in their own committed action towards social justice. This workshop is a sliding scale payment from $25 to $45. It's going to be held on Sunday, August 16th from 3.30 to 5.30 p.m. online. It does offer continuing education for master's level uh, therapists and LPCs. And in the workshop, you'll get a chance to learn what committed action is, what it is not, how values are key in motivating change. And we'll use the matrix, which is a simple, quick, but powerful tool to support you in making value-based change in your life. So join me in on August 16th. You can sign up through my website, which is drdianahill.com, or you can sign up through Yoga Soup's website, which is yogasoup.com. I look forward to meeting you all there. This is Yael. I'm here with Jill today to introduce an episode on mindfulness and recovery from addiction. I had on a guest, Dr. Rebecca Williams, to discuss this issue, which is very timely because rates of opioid disorders are going up. There's been a ridiculous rise in the sale of alcohol and the jokes about gaining the COVID-19 are rampant. And they, these all suggest that we really need to pay attention to how we're coping with the stress of the pandemic because for most of us, when stress rises, we turn to coping mechanisms that aren't always healthy. And Jill, you and I were talking about this before we started recording, and I know that you can kind of relate to some of that stress leading to unhealthy coping mechanisms, and that you've also seen it in your private practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there has been such an increase in autopilot, and um, you know, both with with myself and with my clients, as you said, that you know, for these last four months, I think we've all sort of shifted into this survival mode, this really kind of like primitive hindbrain um, survival mode. And we revert back to these reactive kind of autopilot places. And so I know for me, that has meant, um, you know, eating less healthy than I normally do, drinking a little bit more wine than I normally do. Um, and I, so I found this episode really helpful. There were a lot of helpful reminders about the importance of mindfulness that like just being aware of how we're feeling and what we're doing is such a critical step to, you know, getting out of that autopilot mode. Yeah. And I love that Rebecca offers all sorts of concrete strategies. So if, you know, mindfulness really helps you to take a step back and notice, sort of make space for the feelings and the thoughts and the internal experiences that we're having. But her work really goes a number of steps further in offering sort of active strategies to choose paths that are more value consistent. On this podcast, we're constantly talking about values and sort of connecting to what's really important to us. But sometimes, you know, if, if we have this habit of really unhealthy coping mechanisms, whether it's substance abuse or overeating or shopping or gambling, 
it can be really hard to know what to do with those uncomfortable feelings or thoughts. And so a lot of terrific strategies in here that can be really helpful in this time of stress to stay on a mindful path of recovery. Dr. Rebecca Williams is a psychologist and award-winning co-author of two books, Integrating Mindfulness and Recovery from Addictive Behaviors. Her first book, The Mindfulness Workbook for Addiction, A Guide to Coping with Grief, Stress, and Anger that Trigger Addictive Behaviors, incorporates over 60 worksheets and exercises for readers and therapists to identify healthy coping strategies in recovery. And her second book, The Gift of Recovery, 52 Mindful Ways to Live Joyfully Beyond Addiction, is a pocket coach of mindfulness skills that readers can practice every day to stay well, focus on self-care, and commit to a healthy recovery. Rebecca is a lifelong yoga practitioner and brings the ancient teachings of yoga and meditation into understanding mental health and recovery. Welcome, Rebecca. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, I love your books um, for many reasons, including that they integrate so many different approaches so that it's an integration of mindfulness on its own with acceptance and commitment therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and then dialectical behavior therapy. And you integrate all these approaches to help folks manage addiction. So that means that you take a very flexible, compassionate approach to addressing the various complications of addiction. So there's a lot to talk about in your work, but I was hoping that you could start us off by first offering your definition of addiction. How do you explain what addiction is to patients as well as their loved ones? Sure, let's start with the definition of addiction. That's a great place to start. Um, Well, most people probably know addiction is a compulsive need to use a substance or do a troubling behavior, like gambling, despite the consequences to either you or the people around you. So that's the quick definition of addiction. And it's not always one size fits all. So that's why sometimes we give um, addiction checklists out. Um, We have one in our book, Mindfulness Workbook for Addiction, to help people figure out the signs um, of addiction and, and help them identify what's going on for them personally. For example, trying to quit but not being able to is a sign, increasing Use is a sign for addiction. Some people have blackouts and memory problems, uh, sneaking around uh, to get drugs or alcohol. A lot of folks get into financial, legal, family um, problems, and that's a sign that we use to figure out addiction. Um, Sleep problems, as you can imagine, health problems, um, when they become overwhelming. A lot of folks in in the practice may lie about their use. So I think therapists getting used to that folks might be lying and to try to get underneath that. Um, Folks have loss of interest in doing activities, um, unless they include drugs or alcohol, of course. And uh, uh, some people will come into our office because they're taking uh, risks and, and while using drugs or alcohol. For example, driving while intoxicated, getting their first um, DUI, and coming into the office um, with that kind of problem. Yeah, and I, I think that that's an important just point of psychoeducation, that the, the symptoms of uh, addiction really vary some of them are really physiological. So there's sort of the withdrawal and tolerance symptoms. So withdrawal is if you stop taking a substance that you notice physiological effects and tolerance is needing more and more of the substance to get the same effect. And then some of them are really behavioral or interpersonal. So you're talking about consequences in relationships or legal consequences and still continuing to use despite those consequences. So you can kind of see a range of symptoms. The other thing that I also think is important to point out is that we're 
we're not just going to be talking about addiction to substances, although that's certainly a main focus of your work, but it's also addiction to other things like gambling, compulsive spending, and even eating. So there's a lot, addiction can cover a lot of disordered behavior, um, and some of it really is specific to substance use, but, but a lot of the strategies that you offer really apply to addictive behaviors even outside of use of substances. And I think that's actually a really helpful um, note about, about sort of how applicable your work is to like a whole range of behaviors. Yes, life stressors, absolutely. Yes, it, it does cover a lot, and especially those troubling behaviors that um, kind of go unnoticed, like you mentioned, the um, overspending and gambling and uh, social media addiction, of course, is a big one right now, and porn addiction. So you're right, it does kind of open up the gambit for a lot of different um, troubling behaviors. Yeah, and it, we're we're recording just as a point of fact. We're recording this during the quarantine, during the pandemic, and so the the stressors that we're encountering in the world are huge, and we're trapped in our home without access to a lot of the healthier coping mechanisms we might otherwise have access to. And so I think it's really an important time to be talking about addiction and and how stress and um, coping really fits into pattern behavior that's really hard to um, inter interrupt. And so one of the things that you talk a lot about, and this is sort of the, the crux of your work, is mindfulness in the context of addiction and recovery. So I was hoping that you could speak to why mindfulness is so important for those struggling with addiction. Yeah, super question. Uh, let me first define what mindfulness is, because um, it's been bandied about quite a bit of yeah. last years. Uh, so let me kind of put ground everybody in what the way I think about it, and then we'll, we'll take it from there. Um, John Kabat-Zinn, most people have heard he's got a bunch of books out on uh, mindfulness and meditation. He's a physician who's helped a lot of people tap into the healing quality of mindfulness and meditation um, for medical conditions. So that was where things kind of started. He brought it from Buddhism to, um, to us here. And um, his definition I like, and it says um, for the most part that mindfulness is being aware in the present moment on purpose without judgment. Well, 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 well. Uh, well There's most a lot to unpack there. <laughs> right, right, right. We've got to unpackage this here. Well, most of us can learn to be aware in the moment. I mean, and we'll go over some tricks of the trade for that one. Um, the tricky part here for most of us, including myself, is um, to be aware without judgment. Um, our minds are constantly judging and evaluating and making decisions and, you know, uh, really kind of uh, all day long are, are on and judging every, pretty much everything and everyone. Um, so the purpose of mindfulness is to slow the mind down, to take a breath um, and begin the process of letting go of judgment. And that's a huge skill. But once we get it, we get it and we can really activate that um, throughout the day. So um, folks who are struggling with addiction, why is this thing called mindfulness helpful? Well, as you know, folks who struggle with addiction are really hard on themselves. There's a lot of judgment there for sure. I mean, folks are beating themselves up all the time for a variety of different reasons. Um, folks in recovery or uh, would certainly have strong cravings and um, mindfulness does really awesome things with cravings. I wanna talk about the brain a little bit, of course. Um, 
The way I think of cravings, um, cravings are an intense mind, body, brain desire to use. So in the way I think about it is cravings happen right before a person has difficulty coping with a particular situation, okay, or person. Um, so a craving comes, it's like a rush that happens in the brain right before um, difficulty. And usually folks who are addicted automatically go to the drug or alcohol or that troubling behavior as a way to cope. It's, it's kind of autopilot. It's happened many, 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 maybe thousands or maybe hundreds of thousands of times over the course of a lifetime to do uh, the behavior of drinking, using, um, or that troubling behavior. So mindfulness is a powerful tool to help the person slow down, pause, and provide a moment of calm in a chaotic world before um, that habitual situation happens. So essentially, mindfulness is a way to kind of move around the craving, help you stop, and then the best case scenario uh, is to make a different choice point, a different habit. And we're gonna unpackage what that all, how that works in the brain in a moment. But it's nice to know that mindfulness is a way to decrease your reaction and your reactive thoughts um, and cravings. So that's what's cool about mindfulness and addiction. It really is powerful. Yeah, I, I love, I've heard it described as mindfulness allowing us to respond instead of react. And, and there's just a little bit more, it's like in that mindful pause, you have this opportunity to reconnect to your values or to make a more intentional choice as opposed to just um, being reflexive in, in what it is and how it is that you're responding to what's happening inside of your body or your mind. Um, so I wonder if you can kind of go into the brain biology and activity behind uh, cravings and behind some of those habits that get built over time. Yes. I want to talk about something called neuroplasticity. Have you, you've heard of that, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. well, go ahead and define it. Yes. This, we're talking about the brain, brain stuff now. Neuroplasticity is just a way to say that your brain can heal when you change from a bad behavior to a healthy behavior over time. That's the way I think about it. So your brain has pathways and in addiction, it's automatic pathways that go to, go to the drug. When you're feeling stressed, you go to drug. When you want to celebrate, you go to the drug. All the, all the time, the brain automatically says, ooh, that feels good, I want to go back there. Now, when you're in a, a treatment program or you're in, um, uh, in therapy with someone who's working on addiction specifically, you can actually help the brain heal by training it to take a new pathway, a new habit. But it has to be over and over and over again. The new habit, instead of going to drugs, you go to breathing or you go to meditation or you go outside for a walk over and over and over again. So the pathway that goes toward addiction gets um, shrinks and gets smaller and gets weaker and the pathway that goes to healthy behaviors gets stronger. So actually what happens in neuroplasticity is that you can change your brain pathways and that's fantastic news for everybody, um, not mm. just folks in recovery, but everybody who's uh, has bad or, or unhealthy behaviors can actually start the process of recovery by, by slowly moving to healthy behaviors and healthy habits. So that's the way I think about it in, in a nutshell. 
I love that. And to me, that's kind of the, the core of behavioral health, which is that we can change habits. And by changing our habits, we can change our brain pathways. One thing, though, that I, I do think is important to recognize is that we can weaken the brain pathways to um, behaviors that we're trying to undo or, or change, but we can't delete them. Steve Hayes says, says right. this, there's no delete button in the brain. But by strengthening new pathways, healthier pathways, more value consistent pathways, um, we sort of increase their power and decrease the power of the unhealthy ones. So I think that idea that we can modify our brain, make it healthier by practices that is like the ones that you describe in your books, um, that's a very empowering idea. It's not easy. It takes effort and practice, um, but it is uh, an empowering concept. Right. And it's really just a matter of being expert at the problem. So if the problem is unhealthy habits, um, there's so many books out right now that talk about um, changing habits. And so you kind of have to read up and learn how to change habits. And it's going to happen. It does take time. Uh, I'm reading now Atomic Habits by James Clear, which I really love. And it really talks that it's just small changes can make a huge difference. And I think that kind of helps everybody feel better. And it does work really well. Small changes. I wanted to start diving into some of the specific modules that you go through in your book. Um, and one of the areas that you talk about is, is how we deal with emotions. And one important point is that we can change the pathways in our brain, but what we can't change is the human experience, right? We're, we're going to have uncomfortable emotions. And for people with a history of addiction who may also have a history of trauma or who may be dealing with ongoing stressors, there are going to be really uncomfortable, painful, big emotions that are hard to tolerate. And, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how mindfulness exercises help individuals struggling with addiction relate differently to emotions. Can you explain this transformative idea that you write about in your book, that your feelings don't have to change for you to be okay? Oh, can I repeat that? That is, even when you just said that, I just kind of calmed down. I felt more relaxed. Here it is. Your feelings do not have to change for you to be okay. You are already okay. So whew, that's good to know. Um, this is a radical thought um, that feelings are real, but hey, the key here is that feelings are temporary. Now that's a huge thing for patients to understand and know about, that feelings themselves are temporary. We like to teach folks that cravings are not commands. Cravings are not commands. So folks don't have to forcefully change their feelings, um, they just have to be aware of their feelings. Uh, the way I think about it, it's like taking a bird's eye view of, um, their emotions and thoughts, getting out of the stickiness of emotions and noticing what's going on without attaching to any particular emotions or thoughts and, and keeping your feet on the ground and saying, yes, I'm already okay. And emotions are normal things. We all have them. It's, that's the way things are going to be. You're going to have emotions. Um, in our book, we also have a long list of false beliefs about emotions because I think folks get really bogged down in um, really strong false beliefs about particular emotions. For example, uh, here's a false belief. If I let myself grieve, I will be sad forever. Now that is um, a very intense feeling, just like you said earlier, very intense. However, um, it may not be 100% accurate. So we try to teach folks um, to label their false beliefs and begin to replace them with more realistic beliefs. For example, 
grieving is a normal part of loss, I can move through this, and to really re-engage with their um, center and their sense of resiliency. Yeah, I love that. And I'll, I'll just sort of go back to another quote that you include in your book from Jack Kornfeld, which is, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And again, your book really teaches some of the skills for learning to surf, one of them being thought challenging or, or you know, replacing uh, inaccurate thoughts with more accurate ones, or just relating differently to whatever thoughts you're having. And I wonder actually if you can walk us through the embracing the dog metaphor that you include in your book, because I think that is a really nice um, way to conceptualize both, you know, relating differently to emotions, to thoughts, and even to behaviors. Sure, that Julie Kraft, my co-author, wrote that piece of it, and it's really fun because um, she has a dog, and, and it was really about just um, the 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 constant um, barking and bothering of what a dog can do, and just um, really get in your mind. And so, what the way she thought about it, and the way we thought about it, is that instead of fighting that um, that that. Um, dog that's in the room to actually embrace the dog and to uh, just find out what the dog needs and provide that for the, the actual dog. So it's just a kind of a fun metaphor for trying to, instead of fighting everything, is to actually embrace it and, and to be um, at peace with, with that kind of jumpy dog. That, mm -hmm. that anyway. Yeah, yeah. And just to sort of contextualize it even a step further, I, the the description of this dog is that it's it's a dog that you didn't ask for but that just kind of takes residence in your house and you have options in how you respond to it you can try to push it out the door but if it keeps coming back and you keep pushing it out the door you just end up in this um, ceaseless battle with this creature that is annoying you but if you sort of you know make a place for it give it some comfort give it some food without paying overly much attention to it you can develop a more friendly relationship with it and learn to coexist, right? Because if it's not going to leave, then your options for getting it out the door are, are not available, but instead you can learn to live with it in a more peaceable way. And I, there, it, it's very similar or parallel to the metaphor of the crying baby that acceptance and commitment therapy practitioners use that which Avigail Lev um, described on an episode we had about couples relationships where if a baby is crying and you kind of push it away, it tends to cry louder and you're really not giving it what it needs. But if you hold it close and figure out what it is that it's looking for, then it's more, much more likely to be soothed. And um, you can, again, develop a more uh, peaceful relationship with that, with that small child. Yes. Wonderfully said. That's so cool. I also love the concrete ideas that you offer for what to do in the face of um, emotional discomfort and sort of uncertainty about what to do. And as I mentioned earlier, you draw on dialectical behavior therapy, notions and skills in treating addiction, including opposite action exercise. And I thought this was a really cool um, place to offer this exercise. So I wonder if you can explain how you might guide a patient who's struggling with enormous guilt or shame or even with depression or loneliness through this opposite action exercise. Sure. Yeah. Opposite action is very fun to do within a therapy session. And I'm sure everybody's doing telehealth now. So it definitely can translate into um, telemedicine and telehealth. Um, so here's how it works. Most people have an automatic response to guilt or shame. They usually um, dwell on it. They beat themselves up or, of course, use drugs or alcohol to kind of combat um, guilt or shame. 
So what we do is we teach patients to stop before they go down that well-worn path um, and choose the opposite action. So instead of dwelling on guilt um, or using around guilt, we teach folks how to figure out specifically what part um, they may have in the situation. So um, we try to unpackage it and be in the room with guilt and shame, which are difficult emotions to have, um, and as well as depression and sadness, the same thing can happen. Um, some folks who feel depression and sadness are on autopilot uh, to a behavior that is probably not healthy, for example, like eating too much or staying on the couch all day. Um, so we ask folks to identify the opposite action, which um, they can, which might be they can learn um, and make one healthy new recipe a week, or they may, uh, like I've been doing a lot, going outside for a walk, and what other people are doing right now, uh, being of service to others. So instead of dwelling in the um, difficult and sometimes painful emotions to actually do the opposite behaviorally and um, explore that and see what happens there. Yeah, I love that because it's sort of, I think sometimes when we have big emotions, it can be hard to figure out what to do other than follow it. And sometimes people turn to substances to quell it because of that sort of lack of a uh, sense of what, what else can I do? I, I hope it's okay for me to put you on the spot, but I am kind of curious, what, what would you, how would you counsel somebody who was struggling with big anger right now? So somebody is witnessing, you know, all the brutality that's been happening and the frustration of not being able to make a difference in the world. How would you counsel them using opposite action or, or one of the other exercises in, in managing those thoughts and feelings in healthy ways instead of turning to substances? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is really, uh, you know, that is a really important question. Hey, anger is my favorite emotion. I guess because I'm from the Bronx, New York, and uh, I just am not afraid of anger per se. It's not one of those feelings I run away from. I actually bring it into the room when I'm working with people. Um, I really am more curious about it than um, fearful of it. So um, and anger is a huge part of addiction and, and, and also recovery. Uh, so that's the, first of all, honor, uh, honor the anger. Um, that's to me very important to actually like unpackage it, figure out what exactly is going on underneath it. And it, it's real because there's a lot going on right now and people are agitated, angry, rate, rageful actually. Yeah. Um, so I, I really want to, um, spend time with it. I don't want to sugarcoat it or, or sweep it under the rug in terms of what's going on right now in society. Um, there are serious challenges. However, um, we have to decide what is going to be the best action um, for, for anger. Now, sometimes it's going to be opposite actions. Uh, so in other words, instead of um, potentially aggressively going out and um, being um, agitated in a protest, for example, that may or may not work. The other, the other opposite action for that is I care, it's my value to care about the community. I care about people, maybe um, giving to a cause that helps people um, elevate themselves. For example, one of my favorite um, 
organizations is called A Better Chance. It takes kids from inner cities and gives them scholarships to uh, elite prep schools across the country. And from there, they prepare to go to um, top colleges across the country. So I may need to move from agitation to action in the, the action that makes the most sense for me. So everybody's different um, and this is a tough time, but that's one way I think about how to kind of walk the path of anger and find out where you can go from a values-based perspective. Well, I love that because you're including a lot of the skills that we've already talked about. And again, there's, there's many more, but it's, you start with mindfulness and making space, paying attention non-judgmentally to what that emotion is telling you and, and honoring it as, as important. And I think that is a, such an important place to begin. And what you're saying is that the anger can be activating in a positive way, but that it, it tends to be more positive if we're clear on, if we pause and clarify for ourselves what it is that is most important to us. But of course, individuals lost in addiction can have a hard time connecting with core values. So I wonder if you can actually offer up some tips for folks who may have a hard time getting in touch with their values. Sure. Yeah. Values are, are everything. I mean, in terms of moving in, in a action oriented way, that's going to be the most healing for your heart. So one of the um, exercises we have in our workbook is called uncover your values. And we, oh, we go over 14 value categories, similar to what you guys do in act. We talk about um, the value categories of family, work, financial, faith, sobriety, friendship, intimate relationships, health, community, and others. Um, so we, we actually have the client um, kind of rate what's their most important value um, or top three values. Um, we want them to rank order the values and to figure out what's important right now. In other words, um, in the present moment, similar to the mindfulness uh, direction that we have. And then we have your, the clients go back and identify what the value means for them. So for example, if it is community, um, if that's the highest ranking one right now, we explore what that means and how they would like to spark this value in recovery. So now that their folks are in recovery or early recovery, what, what is going to spark um, moving into, into community for that person? We want to know uh, what actions they have taken in the past um, that show that the value is important to them. We want to know what actions they would like to take today to focus on the value of community. Um, so we really want to get um, a sense of their self-efficacy from experiencing positive community um, interactions in the past and how that's elevated them. And um, we want them to focus also on the present moment. And if folks get off course, which everybody does with regard to values, what actions can uh, the client or patient take to get them back in line with, with what is most important for them? So constantly reviewing values, figuring out what's the, what the top ranked ones are, and really unpackaging um, what worked in the past and where we want to go today to re-engage that particular value. Yeah. I think that is important to just um, validate that everyone gets off course with values because those emotions can really cause us to act in ways that that are less mindful and less consistent with who we want to be in the world because they're so powerful. Um, and I, I really love that example of 
you know, if, if anger is sort of telling you like my community and standing up for my community and standing up for the safety of my fellow human beings is so important to me that you can sort of pause and ask yourself, what are the most value consistent and effective ways that I can act in this moment, recognizing that, you know, from time to time you might go off course, but you can always pause and come back to asking yourself that question. I actually, I, we'll, we'll link to that um, organization that you mentioned, because that sounds like a really, a really wonderful one. I'm a graduate of that organization. So is that I right? a fondness in my heart for a better chance. Yes. Um, went from, you know, the, you know, growing up in the Bronx, received a full scholarship to a boarding school in Boston. And uh, the rest is fabulous uh, with a lot of hard work. But yeah, I'm a big fan, big fan. Oh, what a, what is an inspirational story. I also wanted to talk a bit about grief, which I, I really think is tied to anger. You discuss grief a lot in your mindfulness workbook. And I, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to why grief is so important to look at in the context of healing addiction. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. I really, really um, want to unpackage grief a bit. The reason why both of our books focus on grief and loss is because we didn't see anyone researching or talking about loss and the impact loss has on um, addiction and the impact addiction can have on more losses. Mm. So um, we really, Julie, my co-author and I really spent a lot of time talking about loss and, and grief. Now for me personally, similar to other psychologists who study and have and practice in the area that is familiar to them, I came to this on a more personal note um, myself. Uh, for me, my mother experienced so much loss in her life, even before I was born. Um, she managed her pain and grief by using alcohol and smoking a ton of cigarettes. Um, so growing up, I knew there was something wrong, but losses were never discussed in my household. And people don't really want to talk about losses, yeah. obviously, right? So, um, well, because it's so painful. So we, we, we want to push pain under the rug so that we're not so uncomfortable. Exactly. And that's what happened to, to, in my family and probably a lot of other families. And uh, however, um, the consequence of pushing it under the rug, like you said, is that um, behaviors start coming up that are trying to like soothe the, the grief and the loss, um, but those behaviors, at least in my experience, tend to be, um, or, or for my family, w was addiction. So um, it, 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 it's all intertwined, and I really wanted to unpackage it. And so that's kind of my journey to get to this idea of really understanding the importance of loss and, and addiction. So um, my many patients struggle with many losses. I mean, working at the hospital, there was um, folks who had multiple losses from um, being in the military uh, and having losses coming out of that, as well as in pri my private practice, multiple losses. And we even have a checklist in our book. We have a lot of checklists because there's so many losses that folks don't even think about. You know, um, even uh, if you move, for example, and you lose all your friends when your family moves to another location, folks said, oh my God, that's right. I lost a all of my friends. So um, that's why um, talking about losses and going through checklists and understanding what personally were the losses that uh, your clients have had is extremely helpful. And especially now 
there's so many losses that are going on in our society, not just um, um, a loss of health that some people are feeling, but actually loss of loved ones. There's loss of mental health. I'm super concerned about the frontline mental health and medical workers, of course. There's a loss of fairness, there's a loss of justice. Um, so we urge folks to reclaim their center point um, and honor the losses, talk about them in therapy and, and um, navigate through so that you have new ways to cope with losses that don't have to do with drug using drugs and addiction um, again. Yeah, well, and, and I, I'll just add to that. I think that some of the times the losses can be much smaller, but they, you still feel them, right? So loss of freedom to go out to a restaurant or loss, I mean, which is very, very small, but loss of help to take care of your kids, loss of um, ability to interact with coworkers or loss of free time, right? Because we're home and always working and, and parenting if, if you are a working parent. On top of that, I think sometimes we can make ourselves feel guilty for feeling the discomfort of the loss. We can say things to ourselves like I shouldn't, I shouldn't be struggling so much, you know, other people have it worse and then we can sort of shame ourselves uh, which contributes to the pain that we experience. So I think the loss can be really big and obvious, like the loss of a family member. And obviously that needs to be honored, but sometimes even the smaller losses need a little bit of our attention too. And, and certainly they need our non-judgmental awareness because as you're noting, it really can lead to a, a a propulsion to soothe the loss in sometimes unhealthy ways with addictive substances or, or addictive behaviors. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I, I went out to a restaurant for the first time for my birthday uh, here in um, Georgia. And um, I told, it was a, an intense experience. I was so surprised. I was almost in tears. And then I told my friend, hey, I went out to a, a restaurant for the first time in 10 weeks and she started crying. Hmm. I mean, we're just talking about going out to eat lunch. Um, it was really pretty intense and powerful. So yes, the, the, the energy around the loss uh, of not being able to go outside and not um, you know, being able to connect is, is profound. Yeah, yeah. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more, join us wherever you listen to podcasts. And then I wonder too, if it's okay for me to again, put you on the spot and, and just share a little bit more about your personal journey. So you were talking about how your mother, you witnessed your mother using substances and cigarettes to soothe her own losses. And I'm just curious for you, how did your awareness of the connection between loss and addiction come? And then how did you, how did you sort of take that as a part of your journey into treating addictive disorders? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, Definitely knew something was wrong in my household, um, aside from normal growing up stuff. I, I knew there was a deep, deep divide between my mother's functioning and myself. And so I, I really started studying psychology in high school to really, the basics, really just kind of figure out what, um, just 
what's going on? Why are there, why is this, why is this distress so intense? Um, and um, luckily I was able to um, have good mentors and good teachers to actually move me along in the field of psychology. And I went to college and, and majored in psychology four more years of trying to figure things out and learn. Uh, master's degree also in, in psychology to really fine tune my understanding of um, loss and, uh, and grief. And, you know, of course the, the, the PhD program is another way, another venue to really um, unpackage um, mental health conditions and how they impact um, addiction. So a lot of the journey is just really day, you know, month by month in, in school, just unpackaging what, um, what's, what works for people to be well and what doesn't work. I, frankly, I have to admit that doing, I've been doing yoga for 35 years and um, it has saved my life and in my mental health because when things were unbalanced i was able to reflect back on my yoga practice or or complete yoga and i've taught yoga for 20 years also so not only just you know being a student but also being a teacher keeps me in the game um so that was another way to actually balance my mind calm down and be able to understand the, the journey of, of uh, mental recovery and addiction recovery. That's such a powerful story in, in the way of turning suffering into meaning. And I, I, I'm constantly thinking about that. There's um, many people have, I'm sure, heard of this book or read it, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And I love this idea that when we encounter suffering, that one of the most meaningful things we can do is, is turn it into a path towards healing and helping others. And it sounds like that's really what you did, which is, I think, just inspirational. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about some of the common social problems that I think um, are, are really important to discuss right now, right? There's sort of like a lot of the worldwide social problems. And then the, there's also the social problems that occur inside of the confines of our homes where many of us are trapped. I, I kind of think of quarantine and what's going on in the world at large as like just this pressure cooker, this interpersonal pressure cooker. And, and so I think that, you know, whatever social problems exist naturally are just exponentially greater during this time period of quarantine and, and um, racial injustice coming to, the, coming to light more. Um, you talk a lot about common social problems in your book. What do you see as some of the most common social problems that interfere with recovery from addiction? Yeah, I would say right now, the most common social problems is loneliness and isolation. Um, there's a lot of social problems that we can unpack, but I do want to focus a minute on how, um, how we are a social being. And right now, most of us um, are really just... Um, on our own, with our own mind, um, in our own home, with our clutter, with our children, you know, that are also having their own struggles. So um, there's a sense of loneliness. However, um, I do think there's an opportunity in that loneliness to kind of really reflect on who we are, what our narrative is personally, and how to move forward. I don't think we're doing that enough in, in, you know, in the social realm and 
because the, the screens are one dimensional, but I do think this is a real time to get a little more um, personal with ourselves. In terms of addiction and recovery, obviously AA and NA, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous are extremely helpful, have been helpful for people for decades. Now folks can't go to their AA or NA meetings um, in person to, to break isolation and, and loneliness. Uh, there are AA and NA meetings online, which is really important, and folks should be reaching out to their sponsors, mentors, friends <clears throat> in recovery. Um, so uh, the, the most important piece is, is a twofold thing. One is to understand yourself with self-awareness and um, self-compassion. And the second thing is to begin to break the isolation in a very thoughtful way um, in terms of recovery from addiction and really um, take that extra step to, to connect with someone who may also be struggling with social isolation and uh, early recovery from addiction. Yeah, so it is harder to reach out and connect with people, but I think you're pointing to, you know, some resources that people can take advantage of. And, you know, the fact that online meetings are taking place is a resource that people can take advantage of. And I think that's really important uh, for, for folks to know. Mm -hmm. Were you thinking of some other social problems that, that we're, we're bumping up against right now? Yeah. I mean, so I do a lot of couples therapy and I, I think that you can be in the house with others, as you're mentioning with your kids or with your partner. And if there's uh, tension between you and others who you're with, that can be a real pressure cooker and can drive people to say, you know, I don't have an outlet or a, a non-judgmental person to chat with about how it is that I'm feeling. And then substances become an easy um, way to soothe whatever it is that you're feeling because it feels like you don't have anywhere else to turn. Yeah. And I think, you know, even outside of addictive substances, I think people across the gamut are, are really experiencing that, that we're uncomfortable in our homes, we're feeling kind of trapped, we're feeling pretty stressed out, and we're looking for soothing. So many people are turning to, you know, carbohydrates and snacks or, um, you know, binging out on TV just to kind of check out of the discomfort that they're feeling. Um, you know, and then certainly turning to alcohol or other drugs um, to get that sense of soothing because, you know, we're feeling so um, uncomfortable in the relationships that we have accessible to us and unable to access the ones that might be more soothing. Yeah, you, you make a really good point about being uh, in isolation with somebody, your partner uh, and, and family. And um, what works for me is, is kind of to step up the self-care stuff, to step up the, the meditation, um, the, the home yoga practice, the, the solo walking, if you can get outside in nature, uh, and to really um, kind of activate that self-care piece that's so important. And, and actually, to me, the, the self-compassion piece in, in a relationship is really important too, believe it or not. So in a relationship, to have compassion for yourself to treat yourself um, like your best friend would treat you. And if you're going through a rough patch with your partner to say, hmm, that's a, you're going through a rough patch, it's okay, stay in the game, it's gonna be all right. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I've told, I've told all my patients and, and talked a lot about this with colleagues and friends that self-compassion is something that I've been turning to more and more during this difficult time period because it's one of the few things that really is reliably available is that 
kindness that you can send to yourself, that sense of common humanity that we're all struggling a lot right now. And then that ability to just kind of be mindful of whatever it is that you're experiencing with, you know, openness and non-judgmentalness and making space for it. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a really powerful tool that we can um, always turn to, which, which makes it really powerful when not a, a lot of other things aren't available. Right. Absolutely. I, I do love that you take this million dollar question head on of what is the best time to start recovery. So we're, we're talking about addiction and recovery during a very intense time in the world. Um, and some people might say, you know, now is not the best time because there's few, there, there are, there is such challenge to coping well, right? Because the world has gotten so restricted um, and so difficult. So what, what is your and Julie's answer to this important question of when is the best time to start recovery? Well, I think we have a million dollar answer to your question. <laughs> your brain would like to start today. Your brain is, is, is that um, incredible computer up there uh, that is really working so hard to try to make sense of everything and file everything and put everything in its place. However, um, as we mentioned earlier, it needs new pathways and it needs pathways of wellness and healing. And um, again and again, repetitively to really return to some healthy behaviors and healthy healing activities. Um, It's that ability to choose that is going to be your best friend right now. So being able to choose wellness, resiliency, self-awareness, self-compassion during these difficult times, um, instead of choosing, you know, the autopilot of checking out and numbing out with drugs or alcohol or um, uh, harmful behaviors is going to hold you for the long haul. So the answer to the question of when is the best time to start today? Mm. Well, and I wonder if you can offer, um, a go-to practice for for managing the stress that might come up as we turn towards recovery, as we turn towards beginning the journey into health today. What are some things, what what is sort of like one go-to practice that you recommend for people who who sort of imagine, anticipate a pretty difficult road ahead with trying to change those behaviors? Yeah, I I keep falling back to what you just mentioned and what we talked about a moment ago. Number one, honor where we are and what is happening right now. It is happening and we must be in the present moment with it. My personal go-to practice for myself is self-compassion. We talked a little bit about what self-compassion is. It's just that hand on the shoulder to say, hey, it's okay, you're gonna make it through this. Um, Treat yourself well today, give yourself something enjoyable and healthy that's gonna sustain you for today. And it could be just um, taking a moment with the computer off and the television off, um, the lights are off, and you close your eyes, you lay down and you put a cold compress on your forehead. And that may be what you need today. And that's self-compassion, where you give yourself what you need. Um, There are going to be tough times, um, and you have the mental resources to get through this. I like to say to myself, um, what is the most loving thing to do right now? 
Uh, and I actually act on that. I, I kind of take a moment, I breathe, I ask myself when I'm stressed, I ask myself, what is the most loving thing to do for yourself right now? And I actually just walk down the path and do that. So um, we talked about ways to um, refocus on breathing, um, inhaling and exhaling is really just the beginning part of the answer to that question. Um, and for your patients that are managing relapse right now, I really, you know, recommend to have your patients ask themselves, what is the most loving thing to do right now? Yeah. This kind of reminds me of a recommendation that came from a non-therapist in a book I just read, uh, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. It's a really fun book and pretty inspirational. It it was um, a great read. And she talks about creating sort of a a spreadsheet for yourself with two columns. One is, um, the first column is easy. So things that you do to soothe yourselves that are easy, but that tend to create this vicious cycle for you. Things like engaging in unsafe sex or um, turning to substances or uh, eating too much or spending too much money. So that kind of falls into the easy category where you know you'll feel better in the short term, but that there will be bigger problems down the road as a result of engaging in those behaviors. And then the second column is a reset column. So these are behaviors that help to soothe you in the moment, they might be a little bit harder, but they reset you on a path of health and healing. And some of the actions that you just mentioned would fit in under that. So a mindful walk or breathing or grounding, feeling your connection to the earth. And one of the recommendations that I often give patients is making them available to yourself when you're not in a high craving period. Because when those emotions are big or when you're sort of feeling short fused, it can be harder to generate those ideas of what you can do, the healthy activities. And so um, really engaging in some brainstorming when you're feeling calm and a little bit um, more open to generating ideas can be a helpful strategy as well. It's a great idea to have that column, the, the, that ch- the checklist and that column to set yourself up. The other thing I really love is um, daily affirmations. I think this was kind of popular in the 80s and I was like, yeah, this is great. And, and it kind of went away and now it's, I feel like it's back again. Um, I love daily affirmations. In fact, our book, The Gift of Recovery has 365 daily affirmations um, to say out. I recommend folks say them out loud, record them uh, in their phone say them to themselves, play back the recordings uh, five to 10 times throughout the day. I mean, to hear your own voice, give yourself a positive message of um, affirmation in recovery is, is extremely powerful. Yeah, I loved the affirmations that you offer in your book. And I love the recommendation to put them in your phone and have your phone remind you of them because then they become more an integral part of your day. Um, and I'll just sort of read one of my favorites because um, I do think that engaging these almost as like mantras can be really helpful. So if the small stuff seems big, I can change my perspective. I can bring it back to its actual size. I mean, that's just one of the examples of accepting everyday frustration and changing perspective. Um, But there's a whole host of them. So for another example is even my strongest feelings in recovery are not permanent. And again, programming them into your phone and reminding yourself of them is such a terrific way to sort of um, keep your mind on a healing path. 
I wanted to end by asking you what kind of tips you offer individuals who love somebody who's struggling with addiction or, or who love somebody who's early in their recovery to integrate their mindfulness um, in supportive, loving ways? Yes, <laughs> such a good question. Uh, number one, try not to fix the other person. Uh, you know, that I know there's like a real rush to, to fix and change and make, make different another person, but really the, for the person who loves someone in recovery, the healing is an inside job. It really is about how you're going to be, what your narrative is, how, what you choose every day to be well and, re and resilient, no matter what is going on, because you need to do that anyway to be well. So as long as the person who loves another person in recovery is working on them, their own healing, I, I do think that um, there's a pathway to engage in, in, um, in maintaining being well um, over, over the long haul because recovery from addiction is a long journey. It's not a one fix and done. So you really have to think about this as um, working, training yourself to, to be well um, for the long haul. So um, I, do think, I do think meditation and mindfulness is helpful for the, the loved one. Um, uh, I do think the psychotherapy or telemental health is helpful for the, the loved one. And one of my biggest things that I think is kind of cool to, to think about is when you're doing therapy with a loved one of someone who's uh, um, uh, either actively using or in early recovery, um, I like the fact of the, the patient teaching the therapist a mindfulness technique. Mm -hmm. In other words, um, you know, the patient can actually learn techniques on their own or come back and, and the, the therapist can teach the technique to the patient. But the key in terms of um, understanding from the heart is, and it's fun too, is to have your patient teach you a mindfulness skill or a meditation skill in the telemental health experience. So, hey, give it a try. It's kind of cool. And um, it's something that the, the person who is, is a loved one can actually hold as their very own. Um, hey, I taught my therapist this today. Um, it's pretty neat. And that mimics, I think, a lot of the themes that we talked about, that I talked about with in a previous uh, podcast episode where we talked about um, family approaches to dealing with addiction that, uh, and I love that saying that he, uh, healing from addiction is an inside job. It belongs to the person who is trying to change their behaviors, but we can act in loving and supportive ways that, that are, um, us taking care of ourselves mindfully, lovingly towards ourselves and supportively towards the other. Thank you so much, Rebecca, for joining us. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. You're, you're a great podcaster. Thank you for listening to Psychologist Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our interns, Dr. Catherine Foley-Saldania and Dr. Katie Lear. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources of our webpage, offtheclockpsych.com.